You know, a uh, 10,000-pound elephant can pull up a stake in a circus. You know, it's tethered to a stake in the ground at a circus. It could easily pull it up. Did you know that? Next time you're at a circus, think about that. Make sure you're way up in the bleachers. A 10,000-pound elephant can pull up that stake, but it doesn't. Because when it's only 200 pounds, when it's born, it's tethered to that stake. And when it tries to pull away, it can't. It's only 200 pounds, and it, it pulls so hard, and it hurts its, its leg. It, it sometimes even cuts into the leg. The shackle does. And it learns over the years that it's futile. Resistance is futile, right? <laughs> it, it's futile to try to pull against that because it's just going to hurt, and it remembers. You know, elephants remember. They remember that it, it hurt. And so when they get bigger and bigger and bigger, they still, they still learn that and they pull against that. They feel that little tug and they stop. So they're conditioned to be bonded to the stake. Now what is it, though, that then allows an elephant to break the bonds that have been forged throughout the course of its life? There's something that would... Make that elephant pull up the stake. You know what that is? It's to light the tent on fire. Light the tent on fire. In the next number of weeks, I'm going to be trying to light your tent on fire. We're going to be going through the Ten Commandments through Deuteronomy chapter 5. Not through the Exodus 20, but through Deuteronomy Chapter 5, Deuteronomy's reiteration of the Ten Commandments is about second chances to encounter God. You see, each one of us has bonds. Some of them are good bonds. We're bonded to the commitments that we make. Sometimes we're bonded to, to each other. We're bonded to, uh, to all kinds of, of loyalties that we may have in life. But we also have bonds that are unhealthy. We have bonds to ideas about God and about ourselves that keep us tethered. We have, we have ideas that come up in our mind that, that are said about us, that we repeat in our minds that are not true, falsehoods about ourselves and about God. What does it take to break through? What does it take to light your tent on fire? What it takes is an encounter with the living God. An encounter with the living God. You say, well, Tim, I, I believe in God. And, you know, there are things in my life that have never changed. There, 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 there are sins, of, the patterns of sin. There are, there are uh, uh, bouts that I have with, with depression. There are all kinds of of. of difficulties that tether me to a stake in the ground. And I believe. And it's never changed. I understand that. But I'm not talking about whether or not you believe in God. I'm, I'm talking about whether or not you've had an encounter with the living God. In the places where you're bonded. You see, there are a couple of different 
weaker strains of faith that I believe all of us have been exposed to in American Christianity. You know what I mean by weaker strains. It's like you get a flu shot, and what they do is they give you a weakened strain of the flu virus so that your antibodies build up against it, and so that when you're exposed to the, the whole live flu, you, you've already built up a, resist, a resistance to it. Yeah, I believe that there are a couple of different weaker strains of faith in Christ that have inoculated us from the real thing. Weaker strains of faith, moralism, and deism that keep us from having an encounter with the living God that can break the bonds with which each one of us suffers. So as we turn to the scriptures, I'm not going to read all the commands, but I'm going to read what's kind of a preamble to these commands from Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Second chances on the cusp, after 40 years in the desert, on the cusp of crossing the Jordan and inheriting what had been promised for a generation, Moses is reminding them who God is and who they are. And Moses summoned all of Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes, the rules that I speak in your hearing today, that you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Now, not with our fathers did the, the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time, to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire. And you did not go up to the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then the word of the day, the verse of the day, you shall have no other gods before me. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, would you guide us today to trust in you again? To look to you, not only to your commands. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I think there, there are two different bonds that keep us from the living God, from an encounter with the living God. Two bonds to break. The first one is moralism. Moralism. And what I want to say to you about moralism and about this verse 7, you shall have no gods before me, is simply this. We are called to obey the maker of the command, not the command. And you say, no, we're not called to obey the command? That's right. That's right. Now think about it. We're not called to obey a law. We're called to obey 
the one who made the law. So often, faith gets reduced to this moralistic structure. Why, why, did, why did Jesus, who was perfect in every way, why did Jesus, who was absolutely perfect in his obedience to the law, not come across as some goody-two-shoes? You ever think about that? Why was Jesus so attractive to so many different kinds of people? Why did, why did now, now this convicts me, why did people who were far from God feel so comfortable sitting down and having a meal with Jesus? Because his obedience was to God, not to the law. He obeyed God not the law. He understood what the Israelites had missed out time and time again. What does it say in verse 6? It says, I am the Lord your God who freed you. I'm the one who took initiative in your life. Before he gave the law, not after he gave the law, did he free his people. Don't miss that. Verse 6. Let's read it again. Verse 6. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. When did he give them the law? After he freed them. You see how important that is? You see, every world religion, except for Christianity, which I would say is not a religion, but a relationship. In every world religion, it's obey and then you're accepted. Obey and then you're freed. Obey, and then you're loved. But the Christian faith says this. You're loved, you're freed, so that you can obey. You see, Jesus understood what Moses is calling the Israelites to understand. Jesus demonstrated what the Israelites failed and failed and failed again to do, and that is to obey God, to have an encounter with God, to step into the fire. Of his presence and not just to reduce him to the law. Let me illustrate what I'm talking about. See, it's God taking initiative in our life to free us to obey him, not the law. I love that movie uh, that uh, is based on the Alexander Dumas book, The Count of Monte Cristo. And it's, a, it's an incredible story of bondage and freedom. A man who is falsely accused and imprisoned in this French, brutal French island prison. And he sketches over and over on the wall, God will justify me. God will bring me justice. And it's, it's an amazing story of his becoming friends with this old soldier, scholar, priest, right? Who has been tunneling, trying to get out, but he ends up tunneling into the, his cell, and he, he teaches him everything, and he teaches, he teaches him language, and he teaches him science, and he teaches him theology, and he teaches him how to be a warrior. He teaches him how to handle himself with a sword. He teaches him to be a Renaissance man. The priest has a secret. The secret is he has hidden 
unspeakable treasure, immeasurable wealth this man had. And he's about to die in that cell. And he says to his protege, who is so angry, who is, he wants vengeance because he's been falsely serving a time for a crime he has not committed. And the priest says to him, he says, do not go out and commit the crime for which you are now serving the sentence. He says, I will take this money and I will surely have my vengeance. He says, don't do it. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. And he says, I don't believe in God. And he says, verse 6. He says, verse 6 of Deuteronomy chapter 5. He says, it doesn't matter. He believes in you. You see, there's the encounter that God would have us have with him. Not with his law, not to say, all right, here's number one. Here's the box next to it. Have I checked that box or not? But who is the one? Who is the one? Not that there are many. You shall have no gods before me. Not that there are a lot of choices out there. There is one God, and he's called us to come back to reality. That if God exists, if life has meaning, if there's something, someone behind this, of course, because what matters to us is personal, the one who made all things is a personality to be known, Yahweh. Every time you see Yahweh in 2, verse 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, it says, Lord, capital L-O-R-D, in your translation, the English translation, when it says L-O-R-D, capital L, capital O-R-D, it means Yahweh. It doesn't mean God in general. It doesn't mean the God who is uh, sort of this parochial God, this, 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 this regional God who made this list of rules. It's saying Yahweh, the one who is. I am that I am is what Yahweh means. The living God. And so... We need to break the bond of moralism that would reduce us to obeying merely the law rather than obeying the person who spoke the law. The second is this, the second bond. So the first bond is moralism, right? It makes a God out of the law. It puts us really in the position of, of total control over our lives according to our obedience to the law. Rather than obeying a person who has already freed us, moralism says, I'm just going to keep uh, the rules. I'm going to be a rule follower. But the second bond we need to break, the second weaker strain of the flu virus that we have, of American Christianity, is deism. And it says this. God is an idea. You see, we're called to obey the person, not just an idea. Not just a concept about God. Not just a category in your life that is this God concept. But we're called to obey the person 
not just an idea. See, they'd been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They had been promised. They wandering not in Egypt, not as slaves under bondage. Every step that they took, every breath that they took, bared witness to the fact that God believed in them. That God freed them first to obey. To connect with him. To love him back. He loved him first. He's the initiator. He's the one who took the initiative to bring them out of slavery. And then he said, now here's, here's how you can serve me. Now, what, what person in your life, what person in your life makes no, demand, n- makes no demands on your life? What significant relationship do you have where the, the, that person makes no demands on you? Do you have a significant relationship? You know, as you've heard probably a hundred times, it's, it's kind of funny. You know, if, 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 you, if you have somebody uh, that you love, right? Or let's say you're married and you agree on everything, then one of you may be unnecessary, right? You've heard that before, right? If we understand that a person expresses himself in such a way that makes demands on us, of course. If we're to relate to God in the way that honors him, that brings him glory, that, that points at the person and not just at the, at, at the idea, then of course we're going to have to learn how to obey. You know, when someone is away from you, when, when someone you love is far away, and then they call you, it's, you hear that voice, it's, it's that unique one voice. It's that one hand, it's that one embrace, it's that one face, that one smile. There's no substitute for it. Yahweh has revealed himself. There's one God. Deuteronomy, the whole book of Deuteronomy is all about the fact that there is one God personally revealed. You know, if we don't get this, if we don't understand that we are to obey the person behind the law and not the law itself, if we don't understand what we're to obey God in particular, personally, and not just God in general as a concept, then we will be in danger of doing this one thing. We will be in danger of doing this one thing. Of making God an ends to our means rather than an end unto himself. Now, that's a hard thing to take in. You know, I mean, maybe some of you even haven't even had breakfast yet. So let, let's, let, let, me, let me explain what I'm talking about. I, I took... I took my daughter to a, a, a concert here a few weeks ago. And there were these performers from the Lincoln Center uh, on the piano and on the strings. I was blown away by these people. By not only their talent, but their discipline. And what they played, the music that they played was so exquisite and so 
beautifully executed. I was swept up. I was watching this, listening to this. And you know how music can have the end of relaxing you, right? I was just marveling. I was just basking in amazement at the beauty of the music. Period. It wasn't to do anything for me. It wasn't anything else. I was just simply basking in the beauty of the music. Psalm 27. One thing I ask of the Lord. This is what I seek. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And to seek him in his temple. You see, when we understand that God has freed us so that we can love him back without making him an end. When we understand that God has freed him to love him back through obedience. To love him back through obedience. Knowing that our obedience can't earn more of his love. Knowing that our obedience can't do anything more or apply pressure for him to do things for us. When we understand that all our obedience can do is love him, then, and only then, do we begin to have an encounter with the living God. Not God in general. Not God as a category or concept or great idea. But then, our worship, our obedience is centered upon the one who made you. The one who loves you. The one who freed you. That you may love him back. Well, of course, that's what this table is all about. It's a table that demonstrates openly and even physically that God took the initiative for us. That he took upon us the yoke of the law that we could not keep. That in keeping that law perfectly... He demonstrates his love to us that we may be freed to respond. So I invite you to this table today. Not as a Presbyterian table. Not as a religious table. But as a table of relationship. 